From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The state's taking new steps to fight COVID-19 as children as young as five are poised to get the vaccine. We'll check in with CPR health reporter John Daly on where things stand. Plus, when it comes to overall health and quality of life, what's the pandemic's ongoing impact on mental well-being, food insecurity, and even something as basic as respect? Then, Colorado's Teacher of the Year is a role model for her students. We talk with Autumn Rivera about teaching teenagers, engaging in science, and encouraging kids to make a difference. One thing I really push in my classroom is that belief and desire that you don't have to wait until the future to make a change. And a Colorado Mesa University student plows through mud and snow to become a mountain bike champion. Support for Colorado Public Radio comes in all shapes and sizes. You might give monthly as an Evergreen member or contribute during fund drives. Maybe you donated your car or gave a gift of stock. For all the ways you support CPR, thank you so much. Your generosity is deeply appreciated. Thank you for bringing trustworthy news and timeless music to listeners across Colorado. Explore all the ways to give on the support page at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. This is a critical week for kids and the COVID vaccine. The Centers for Disease Control will make final recommendations for children ages 5 to 11. Meantime, there are new measures to keep the virus from spreading in Colorado. CPR health reporter John Daly is tracking all the developments. Hey, John. Hi there, Nathan. So let's start with the key metrics. What are we seeing overall? Well, you know, uh, things are, are not looking good. They're trending in an unfavorable direction. There's just no question about that. And frontline providers, public health leaders, the governor are all ringing alarm bells. There are now more than 1,200 COVID-19 patients hospitalized in Colorado. That's the most since December, and nearly 80% of the people right around that number in the hospital with coronavirus are unvaccinated. And what kind of toll is that taking on doctors, nurses, and, and other hospital staff? Well, almost four out of 10 hospitals in the state expect to be short-staffed in the next week. Here's Dr. Anuj Mehta, a pulmonologist with National Jewish Health and Denver Health. He serves on the governor's expert emergency epidemic response committee. It's no longer a question of ventilators. It's a question of safely staffed beds. Like if you typically have one nurse for two ICU beds, and now you're asking that one nurse to care for four ICU patients, that's not safe anymore. You know, and this is especially an issue in more rural parts of the state where it's just much tougher to adjust to a surge in patients. Frontline providers say healthcare workers are exhausted heading into their 20th month of the pandemic. If the hospitals fill up too much, everything gets more challenging, right? Resources get scarce. Hospitals need to move people around. Staffing gets pinched. Frontline nurses and doctors have to work longer shifts. And the potential to compromise the quality of care just grows. I see. But Governor Jared Polis has issued executive orders in response to this concern. How are they supposed to help? Well, there are two key health orders. The first allows hospitals and freestanding emergency departments to decline to admit or treat some patients so they can, they can be transferred to other facilities. And that's even over the patient's objections. 
The other clarifies when emergency decision-making measures called crisis standards of care can be activated. It also directs the state's insurance division to prepare emergency rules to help address these staffing shortages that, that we've been talking about. Hmm. Now, now tell us more about these uh, crisis standards of care. These are guidelines, and they essentially set out how to make the most grave medical decisions if the COVID-19 crisis were to overwhelm a hospital and resources become scarce. And they dictate how the medical community should allocate things like ventilators and intensive care beds in extreme cases when uh, patient needs exceed the resources that are available. And those standards would help determine who gets what care and at what level. And invoking the standards is more likely to mean that one hospital can transfer a patient to a less crowded hospital. Is Colorado unique in doing this? No. You know, we've heard about this throughout the pandemic in various states and hospitals in other Western states right now, like New Mexico, Wyoming, Utah, Idaho, Montana, Alaska, they've all either activated their own crisis standards or have come close in recent weeks. And that makes it harder for Colorado, if it needed, to ask those states for help because those other states are already swamped, too. So let's take a step back. How is this different from the big surge at the end of last year, the biggest of the pandemic? Right. Very important to bring this context. You know, we had more than 600 more people hospitalized with COVID in early December, so almost a year ago, uh, and probably even greater worries about capacity. And we didn't have any vaccines or they were just starting to roll out at that point. Uh, you know, now doctors are treating patients for all the normal things like replacing joints or heart issues mm. or trauma on top of COVID-19, right? And and this time, though, it's particularly frustrating to healthcare workers and the governor and others because it's entirely 100% avoidable. And in a lot of places, half of the eligible residents have chosen not to get vaccinated to avoid this. The state health department also is trying to free up hospital capacity, I understand, with other public health orders like delaying cosmetic procedures? Yeah, that's right. Uh, this is another public health order that came down Sunday. It requires hospitals, hospital-owned ambulatory surgical centers, and outpatient surgery centers to delay cosmetic procedures for up to six months uh, if uh, it would not cause harm to life, limb, or function. The CDPHE, the state health department, also extended another public health order to try to control the spread of the virus. It requires face coverings in some settings, and it requires hospitals to provide the state with information that uh, helps the state assess statewide capacity to provide necessary medical care and services. And one other new public health order requires providers to give second shots of the COVID vaccine and any ad additional or booster shots, regardless of where someone got their prior vaccinations. Now, now sticking with the vaccination, you mentioned earlier that 80 percent of the people in the hospital with COVID-19 right now are not vaccinated. What is the status of vaccinated people here in the state? Well, those numbers are decent. You know, the governor said Monday 80 percent of eligible Colorado adults have now gotten at least one dose. So that would be the folks over 18. And if you look at our total population, more than 60% are now vaccinated. But as we've been discussing, the rates vary and rural Coloradans continue to lag behind uh, folks on the front range. 
And for people who have gotten vaccinated, what is the latest understanding about getting a booster? It seems muddled right now. Yeah, there's a little bit of confusion here, but here's what the CDC says. It recommends the booster for people 65 and older, uh, the people in the 50 to 64 year old age group with underlying medical conditions or those 18 and older who live in long term care settings that the CDC recommends they should all receive a booster shot for people who got the Johnson and Johnson Janssen vaccine. They recommend a booster shot for anybody older than 18. And that would be at least two months after getting the vaccine. Now, Colorado seems to be more aggressive about getting the boosters out than even what the CDC recommends. And it'll be interesting to see if it draws any pushback for the federal government. But the bottom line is that a lot of folks, and especially older folks, should be, the CDC is recommending, the state too, of course, should be getting those those booster shots. Yeah. I, I see. Now, now, all of this, of course coincides with the upcoming holidays and restrictions easing for international travel next week. What is the state health department watching for? You know, ideally, Colorado's pandemic curve will start to trend downward in the next few weeks. Dr. John Samet is an epidemiologist and the dean of uh, Colorado's School of Public Health. He directs COVID-19 modeling for the state. He said more trouble will be ahead if the state doesn't see the virus trends improve before Thanksgiving when many people will hit the road and mix a lot with other folks. Yeah, it would be really another challenge if our curve was not turning down and we superimposed all the travel and mixing. And we should, of course, mention that we've got these vaccines coming up for the 5 to 11. Uh, We'll be hearing a lot about that and reporting about that uh, here in the coming days. You know, state and public health experts continue to stress the importance of measures people have heard about for months uh, going into the holidays now, Nathan. That would be the things we've been talking about vaccination, testing, masking, distancing, and ventilation. All those things are just as important as always. Such an important conversation. John, thanks so much for this update. You bet. Thank you, Nathan. CPR health reporter John Daly tracking COVID-19 in Colorado. As you heard, COVID-19 has found its way into nearly all facets of our life, from employment, housing, financial security, and even how respected we feel at the doctor's office. So how are Coloradans holding up with all this pressure? A new survey from the nonpartisan health research group Colorado Health Institute provides some answers. CHI's president, Michelle Leak, joins us now to break it down. Hey, Michelle. Good morning, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Uh, So throughout the pandemic, one of the guiding questions in our reporting has been, how are you doing? And your survey provides some context for that. As might be expected, mental health was one of the major themes. Overall, almost 25% of Coloradans aged five and older said they'd experienced eight or more days of poor mental health in the previous month. That was up from about 15% in 2019. For those aged 19 to 29, that number leaped to over 33%. But what I find striking is that overall, About 20% say they expect to need some kind of behavioral health service over the next year. Is that your takeaway, that mental health really has become kind of all-encompassing in our lives? It sure is, Nathan. I think that's one of the key findings from the Colorado Health Access Survey. Um, What comes to mind is a term called syndemic, and this is the idea that we don't have a pandemic, but we have cascading and interrelated pandemics. And the Chaz really puts a finer, fine point on 
the crisis that we um, have all, have suspected for a long time, but now have can quantify the uh, really sort of devastating impact of the the pandemic on our behavioral health. And I'm guessing that in the dozen years you've been doing this, uh, there hasn't been anything that impacted the lives of Coloradans more from one survey to the next than this pandemic. In other words, is there anything that doesn't seem to be directly influenced by COVID-19? So I think just about everything in our survey has been impacted by COVID-19. We just heard from John Daly about the sort of micro lens of what's happening in the hospitals and with the workforce uh, and vaccines, and that's sort of the acute episode. But the, the health access survey allows us to sort of broaden our lens to look at the impacts on housing, on uh, childcare, on um, uh, behavioral health, and access to even things like oral health care, right? And so we see from the results of the survey that just about every facet of our lives has been touched by by the pandemic. And of course, I'm thinking things like access to and the impact of telemedicine, for example, that, that we have not really thought about before the pandemic. Are there other areas where you perhaps had to adjust your thinking because of the pandemic more than you thought you, you needed to? Yeah. So you point to telehealth, that's a, that's a key example. And I think one of the success stories really that we've seen in the data, like it's all not just sort of doom and gloom. Mm -hmm. uh, telehealth, the, uh, we reacted as a community and a delivery care system sort of writ large in a way that we pivoted quite re readily and quickly to telehealth services. And that allowed all Coloradans to, um, at least get some of the care that they needed. And particularly in behavioral health care, we've actually seen an uptick in utilization because of the convenience and the efficiencies that telehealth provides. We certainly saw- So someone, saw for example, going to see a therapist via their computer as opposed to having to, to actually go to an office because of the pandemic, yeah? Exactly. So, um, so therapists can ostensibly see more patients in any given eight hour period. And, and certainly it's a lot more convenient for uh, patients as well. Um, I also want to turn to food security, uh, the idea of literally being able to afford to eat. Your report says nearly one in three black Coloradans between the ages of 19 and 44, that's nearly 33% reported not eating enough at some point in the past year because they just had trouble affording food. Now that's in comparison to roughly 10% of whites in the same age range. Also, the report includes a map of Colorado and virtually the entire southern part of the state from the western slope to the eastern plains showed food insecurity affecting anywhere from 10 to 12% of the residents. Those numbers are higher than almost anywhere else in the state. Why is that? Yeah, I think you raise a really good point. And I, overall, the CHAZ, the Colorado Health Access Survey, I think, Nathan, one of the most dramatic and key findings is that we can no longer um, think about health care or health, our health um, status and outcomes independently of social and economic, demographic and geographic criteria, right? And so mm. these are also related. Food insecurity is a great example of that. 
we do see this very dramatic uh, uh, um, finding that in the southern parts of, part of the state, there is uh, really high food insecurity. Uh, that's a rural area. It's a impoverished area of our state relative to other areas of our state. Um, so I think that that's part of it. We've also seen um, in the metro areas and uh, an uptick in um, things like the the blueprint to end hunger uh, and food pantries. And I suspect that our delivery of sort of um, those kinds of interventions may be better in metro areas than it is in rural areas. So is it fair to say that the pandemic shined a light kind of on these disparities that were there, uh, you know, more fully? Are, are there solutions being brought forward that, that weren't looked at before across all age groups and, and races and, 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 and even geographical areas? Yeah, I think like how I sort of like distill all this information, Nathan, is like I think it's a story of threes and tens for so many things when we look underneath and see um, it, when we start to really examine the di disparities and inequities that we see in the data, oftentimes it's a one in three versus a one in 10 kind of dynamic. And so, um, for example, just thinking about the last year of, are you able to pay your expenses? Are you able to sort of like meet your, your living expenses? One in three black or Hispanic Coloradans reported that they had trouble with that, whereas for the white population, it was only one in 10. The same thing about availability and affordability of food. One in three black um, Coloradans um, report that they couldn't afford food where it's just one in 10 for whites. We see that pattern over and over again when we're looking at housing or the impact of economics. Um, and I think that the programs and services that are getting at these disparities of identifying priority populations of working in communities, we again, just sort of chip away at um, these really profound and disturbing inequities we see in the data. And Michelle, well, it was a relatively small number, about 148,000, I believe, or a bit more than 4% of the respondents said they had been disrespected when it came to the healthcare services they had received over the past year. And the reasons ranged from income to culture to ethnic background. Still, 71% said it was the clinical providers who were the source of their dissatisfaction. What do you make of that? And what do you do with that? Yeah. So I think this is one of the um, one of the new it is one of the new questions that we asked on the survey, and we're be just beginning to sort of get a handle on it, Nathan. But we wanted to mm -hmm. really understand how consumers perceive discrimination and how they experience that in uh, in, in health settings. And what is clear is that the, um, the first the reason that, that uh, Colorado cited for feeling like they were discriminated or treated unfairly in clinical settings was because of their income or financial situation. And that was closely followed by concerns about race and ethnicity. I think in terms of what we're doing about that is that the opportunity to ramp up and accelerate the, the work that many, many health providers are doing around cultural competency is a good place to start. Um, and I think that by understanding, by parsing out this data, by 
um, um, really understanding who is experiencing this, we can make inroads, but we have to understand how this is happening and to whom it is happening before we can ever um, uh, really come up with a full set of solutions. So definitely some, something to look at and to study as, as we, we really digest this survey. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Nathan. Michelle Leak is the president and CEO of the Colorado Health Institute. Their biannual health access survey reflects the quality of life of about 10,000 Coloradans in a number of areas. Colorado's new Teacher of the Year says she enjoys teaching in a small mountain town where she helps teenagers during their formative years. Autumn Rivera teaches sixth grade science at Glenwood Springs Middle School. Hi, Autumn. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So first off, congratulations. That is a big honor. Uh, You've been teaching for 17 years now, right since you got out of college, actually, I heard. How does it feel to be honored in this way after all these years of teaching, but with so many more years ahead of you? Do do you think this win, this honor is going to affect how you teach in the future? I'm very excited to have received this huge honor, and I'm excited to see how it moves my career further. I think the people I'm going to meet these situations I'm going to experience are going to allow me to really bring it back to my classroom and really continue for the next half of my career to just grow and continue to uh, teach my students and continue to focus on science and pushing that passion. I'm just really excited for all that opportunity and being able to apply to my classroom for years to come. As we said earlier, you teach sixth grade science at Glenwood Middle School, uh, actually right down the road from me. I'm in Newcastle. Uh, today, so not too far away. Uh, Anyway, you teach sixth graders. And I remember when I was in sixth grade, oh my goodness, I could not wait to get out of there. My body was changing. My voice was dropping. It was not a fun time. How do you deal with that year after year after year? Yeah, I've worked with middle school my entire 17 years, and I love it. I love being with middle school students. I love their energy. I love their quirkiness. A lot of times, We as adults don't look back on our middle school career as something that we fondly miss. No one says, I wish I could go back to middle school right now. It's hard lessons are happened. I learned a lot of hard lessons in middle school. And I love the chance to be able to get to know my students and sort of help them through and be that guide through adolescence and just let them know it's going to get better on the other side. And you can, it's, it might not be great now. You might have those awkward moments, but it gets better on the other side. As far as my classroom goes today, I currently have a heat lamp and a hot plate with a beaker of water. I have a plant wrapped in plastic and some water infiltrating into a funnel with rocks. And so hooking students in and letting them sort of have questions as they walk into my classroom and then going from there and taking those questions to drive our instruction. We're learning about the water cycle, but it's a great way for them to see those experiences happening firsthand. Talk a bit about when that child gets it when you when you make that that connection i think for a lot of teachers that moment that aha moment we like to call it when a child finally gets what's going on is what keeps us in the field year after year in science especially this is unknown things to them they're not really getting it or it's something they've had questions about before and never really had the words or the terminology to help them understand it and so every time a student is trying to figure out 
Why is this behaving this way? Why are there water droplets on the outside of my can? Allowing students to have that aha moment and learn it and to be able to explain it is just such a great part of teaching because students being able to explain the world around them and to be able to understand what's going on and just love that feeling of learning something is such a great experience as a teacher. Your school in Glenwood Springs has a majority of Latinx students. What does it mean for you as a Hispanic teacher to win this award? It's really hard for people to perceive where they want to go if they don't have an example of what that looks like in front of them. And so to be able to be that role model for my students, and hopefully one day I'll see one of them in this situation, it's just, it's beyond amazing. And I'm so honored to be able to be one of those representatives and one of those leaders and one of those guiders for them. And you grew up in a a really rural place, about 30 minutes north of the Dotsero exit on I-70. It is a beautiful part of Colorado over there. Uh, You later taught for more than a decade in Colorado Springs. What brought you back to to small town life in Colorado? Yeah, I moved from uh, where I grew up. I graduated from Eagle Valley High School and moved to Colorado Springs and went to college there at Colorado College and then taught for seven years. And finally, the big city just started to wear on me and I missed my small mountain town. And so moved back home to Glenwood and have just loved being part of this community where people, you walk in the grocery store and you see people, you know, you see students, you see families going to sporting events as a community event and talking with people and cheering on students. I just love that small town community and miss that and was very grateful to come back to Glenwood Springs Middle School. But with that said, you know, there is definitely a concern for those of us living in this area about affordable housing and maybe funding for schools isn't what you would see in a bigger city. Did that impact you at all in terms of wanting to come back? Like, hey, could I afford to live in the place I want to teach and make an impact on students? Yes, Roaring Fork School District is the third most expensive district in all of Colorado to live in, and yet we are funded in the bottom third percent of average per pupil funding, and so it is really difficult to live in in our rural towns, especially our resort towns, um, yet those those students and those teachers still deserve a, a, a livable wage, and you know, the graduating class right now of 2022 has never had a fully funded educational year in all 12 years of education. And that's even, you know, before the pandemic, which threw everything in the air, didn't it? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And I think on top of that, it's just made things worse. Teaching is really hard right now. It's. I think magically we thought this year we were out of the pandemic and things would go back to normal, but we don't even know the normal we're returning back to and things aren't normal. We're still working hard and long hours. We're still trying to keep kids safe. And all of that just involves a lot more focus and paying attention of teachers. And so I just worry about the that mixed with not really being paid and not being funded as education should be funded. I just worry about the longevity of many of our teachers' careers as they just might not be able to do it or might not have the... Um, the desire to want to keep working so hard for not really a a lot of money. I feel like we value a lot of things and I love living in this great state, but we need to start really funding education where it needs to be in order to help support our teachers and therefore support our students. It's beyond clear that the pandemic has taken a toll on teachers and putting the masked unmasked debate to the side today. I, I still would like to know during these past few months, did you ever think about quitting just throwing in the towel during this pandemic? 
you know, I don't know a single person that didn't stop and think for a moment, what else could I do? And I, there were times last year where I, or the year before, and, and even this year where I've sat and thought, like, could I do something else? And I don't blame those that want to go and try something else because it is a lot of work. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, I love it too much. I love teaching and <laughs> I love being with my students. I love, you know, having them tell me random things in the morning as they're walking by and showing me the picture they drew. Um, I love hearing about just how they're changing and growing as people. And so until that changes, I think the teaching career is stuck with me. <laughs> and during this pandemic, you had a group of students which you taught online uh, that you had never met before. That is to say, you had to form a relationship uh, via computer screen and not uh, in person, which sounds difficult for especially a science teacher. So I was with them for a whole quarter. So we started online. And then from there, we went we went back in person. So for the entire quarter, I was together online. But during that time, we really developed a relationship. And I was shocked by that because I thought, here are students I've never met online. What is this going to look like? And we really developed some strong bonds to the point that one class, um, one time we were teaching and I was talking about something gross and the kids were being grossed out by it. And some student piped up and he said, it's not disgusting. It's science. And we all laughed about it. And we were joking on how that comment should be a sweatshirt. <laughs> and before we knew it, one of the student's parents um, worked for All Kids Dental. And he was like, I'll sponsor you guys. And so the whole class got sweatshirts that said, it's not disgusting. It's science. And so it was crazy. Who knew I would bond with a group of students that I never even met in person. And when we came back in person, I didn't have them anymore because of cohort and keeping kids safe, we had to change our schedules. But it was still fun to see them. And I just ran into one of those students today and she had her sweatshirt on. And so those relationships oh, that's still great. continue. It's been a year. So yeah, it's really fun. You've been teaching since the mid 2000s. And of course, we all know that technology was so different back then. And we've seen massive changes in how students and us, of course, interact with technology, especially with remote learning. With that said, how do you keep your students' attention uh, with all of this technology coming at them during a school day? Um, you you got you to gotta work for it, for sure, I think. Um, but I think it's possible. And students are used to getting information. We all are used to getting information in a quicker format. I think also not always seeing technology as the, as the evil. It's actually really helpful and has really helped build connections and allow students to connect with each other. I know for myself, I still check in on my past students by sending them a text or sending them an email. I have a teacher Instagram page and a teacher TikTok page so students can follow and we can stay up to date with that. And sometimes it's hard. I'm not going to laugh or I'm not going to lie. I still don't understand Snapchat that well, <laughs> but trying to meet <laughs> the students where they are really helps just sort of bring out that interest and bring bring out better learning from them. So so you're a TikTok star to your students? You've gone viral on TikTok? Uh, I've, not, I've <laughs> gone viral on TikTok, but I do have a TikTok page. I definitely use it a lot in the pandemic. It was a great way to connect to my students and meet them where they were. There were definitely some times where I was like, we're talking about states of matter and the kids aren't getting it. And so I have a TikTok video on states of matter that the, I put on there and the kids would watch it. And I'm like, hi, I know you watched it. So at least you've learned something. <laughs> So I tried to take the science that I was teaching them and meet them where they were on the devices and on the like media that they're used to. So we can still have some science infiltrating wherever they're at. Getting back to this honor, being Colorado's Teacher of the Year, 
You've said that one of your messages to students is that they don't have to wait to make a change. They can do it right now. Uh, talk about how that played out with Colorado's newest state park, Sweetwater Lake. Yeah, one thing I really push in my classroom is that belief and desire that you don't have to wait until the future to make a change. So many times we tell our students, well, next year or when you're in high school or when you go to college or when you're an adult and we're always preparing them for the future and we never get a chance to really have the students experience it right now. And so um, a couple years ago, I had a chance right before, actually right before the pandemic, we were studying the Colorado River and its tributaries and really learning how activity in Glenwood Springs and the surrounding area affected how healthy the river was. And in that process, a student of mine who's now an eighth grader made me aware of a lake uh, called Sweetwater Lake that was up for sale. And a land trust, Eagle Valley Land Trust, was trying to purchase the lake so that they were able to put a land trust, an easement on it to protect this lake. And so the student brought it to my attention and asked if we could do something to support this. And so, of course, if a student is interested, I'm ready. And so we had students research the issue, and then we had them write letters to the land trust. Um, they could choose what side they were on. I did not want to tell them what side. They had to make it based off of their own research. And we wrote mm -hmm. letters to the land trust. The students also wanted to raise money. And so they sold their artwork. They did a bake sale. And in the middle of COVID, we sold T-shirts. And so they were able to raise about $600 to donate towards the Eagle Valley Land Trust and purchasing of Sweetwater Lake. And it seems like not that much. The lake was over $7 million to purchase the property. And so $600 is not that much uh, compared to $7 million. But the fact that it was raised by 10, 11, and 12-year-olds, I think, is what spoke the most to it. And students were able to bring awareness and raise money. Um, and the land trust was able to purchase the property. And then it was transferred to National Forest. And then Wednesday, October 20th, our governor, Governor Polis, was announced that it is now our next state park in Colorado. It's the first of its kind, as it is the only state park that's nationally owned, but then is going to become a state park. And so it's very exciting to see what started as a small idea by one sixth grader has slowly snowballed into this awesome situation. And that land is going to be saved forever. Oh, that's such a great example of how students can really make a big difference. Thank you so much for joining us and congratulations once again. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Autumn Rivera is Colorado's newest teacher of the year. She teaches sixth grade science at Glenwood Springs Middle School. The honor also makes her the state's nominee for national teacher of the year. Twenty-year-old mountain biker Lauren Lackman had dreamed about the race for years. She knew there was a good chance the champion's jersey was hers. Then came seven inches of snow, race delays, and using shovels to clear the trails. But caked in mud and all, the Colorado Mesa University junior did win the Collegiate Mountain Bike National Championships in Durango last month, securing the Women's Varsity Individual Omnium. Lauren joins me now from the CMU campus in Grand Junction. Hey, Lauren. Hi. First off, congratulations on this national title. The uh, national championships took place in mid-October, and it being Colorado and all, there was snow. What was it like preparing for the race and then hearing snow on race day? Um, well, so I'm originally from Wisconsin. So preparing for it was just trying to remember how it is being back home. 
And yeah. I honestly <laughs> didn't know there was going to be snow until about two days before we left. And it was kind of a shock. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> this early already? But I was so excited when I got there and I saw the snow. I was like, okay, you know, just picture being back home where it all started. And it kind of made everything come full circle, honestly. Yeah, you say you're from northern Wisconsin, Wausau, I believe, which, of course, helped you prepare for these insane conditions. Talk about your, your growing up in Wisconsin. Yes. So um, being back home and growing up with the outdoors being as they are very cold in the winter, <laughs> <laughs> I would do cross training for skiing, which I think was a benefit, not just to like not being worn out with on the bike, but as a good strengthener and my dad had always supported me in all of my skiing biking academic all of my adventures and it really helped me kind of i don't know how to put it um, um go for this i guess <laughs> yeah well, I, well how, how do you how do you train to bicycle in snow on a mountain bike trail how do you do that <laughs> it's different it's it's really slippery for one and the more you bike on it the muddier it gets so it kind of goes from an ice rink to a mud festival <laughs> but it's a lot of fun the biggest thing is picking tires knowing how fast and how much power you can put out in a corner and knowing okay if i go a little too hard here i'm probably gonna slip so i have to rein it back here and then go harder when it, there's some grass that i can grip onto and it's so it creates a a really muddy mess it sounds like it does <laughs> yes and it's much more technical than you would assume going into it now i i should note that cmu's mountain biking team is really top notch so being at the front of the pack must have helped right kind of going first through this uh snowy muddy mess right Yes, I actually started 36, so they, or around there, I'm not sure the exact number actually, um, but they do call-ups based on how, like, first for school and then so on through all the schools. So it's it's even for every school, not necessarily how that you did in your conference, unfortunately. But Got it, I see. It was, it was a battle from the start. Yeah, I got stuck behind a couple crashes in my first race, but it just, it motivates you to want to keep pushing forward and knowing, okay, I just need to get past these people, then it'll be smooth sailing and I can go my own pace and just keep going through the mud. <laughs> so so tell us about the courses themselves. They're all downhill or, or is it a mixture of different types of mountain biking? It's a mixture. Yeah. So Omnium, which is what I won, was four events. First, um was dual slalom which is a gravity event and you go side by side go through brackets racing each other for i think is around 30 seconds and then mm. was cross country which is i guess what i consider the most known mountain biking for myself at least it's my one of my stronger suits and you do a we did three laps on a course two laps actually never mind it's supposed to be three and then the snow they cut it down <laughs> Uh, a lapse around a little bit up, a little bit down, kind of traversing around the mountain, kind of classic. 
and then short track, which is a mini version of cross country, <laughs> also endurance, and then onto downhill, which is just going downhill as fast as you can for five minutes. <laughs> And making sure you don't slip in the mud and, and, and spin yes. out and all that crazy stuff, I'm assuming. And these yes. were definitely not normal conditions, right? No, definitely not. This is the <laughs> first time I've ever like done a national championship with this much snow or mud. It was a lot of fun. I've done cyclocross, which is one of my other disciplines, which is normally around December area of the seasons. And it's snowy and muddy and you have these tiny little skinny tires and it's basically you slide in the mud and you know you're gonna fall but you get back on run with your bike up over obstacles so i think that prepared me a lot for this it was now does, similar, does it make it more does it make it more rewarding that that you won given these conditions and how treacherous they were it really does yeah i think well my mom was telling me up until my last race no matter what happens you know that you are here competing in this and you're giving it your all and this is something that a lot of people will never experience it's something that i'll remember forever <laughs> and when you chose to come to colorado mesa university you wanted to do mountain biking right how has it been preparing for races like these well being a full-time student majoring in mechanical engineering it's rough. It's a lot of long days and the lack of sleep, <laughs> but it is, it's so rewarding knowing that I'm not just pursuing my athletic career, but I'm also getting a degree at the same time. And my coaches and classmates and teachers, they're so understanding of how hard it is being a student athlete and they just help me through it all so well. And there's so many opportunities especially here at CMU, to be able to do that, to be able to get an amazing degree, have an amazing time here at school, and to be able to see how far I can go in my sport. Now, for all the mountain bikers listening, can you give us maybe the top three or four trails you love in Western Colorado that they just have to try? Yes, it's a hard one. They're all really fun. <laughs> but I would say my top couple, I love Time Machine here at um, the Lunch Loops in Grand Junction, Horse Thief on the Cocopelli Trail, and then ooh, uh, probably Slick Rock and Moab, honestly. Let's throw that one in there. Okay. That one's just so unique. So I've also heard of this Palisade Plunge. Is that a, it's a new one, but have you tried that yet? I have not gotten the opportunity to try that yet, no, but I am very much looking forward to it. I saw a couple of YouTube videos and it looks pretty gnarly, honestly. <laughs> so now that you've won a champion's jersey, what's next? Um, I mean, now that I saw it and I got it, I would like to try to have my attempts at a couple more. That and then hopefully one of my biggest dreams was to be able to represent the U.S. at a world championship. So hopefully in my next couple of years of my maybe collegiate cycling, maybe after that, I get a chance to represent the U.S. So there you go. We'll be watching. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me.
Lauren Lackman is a junior at Colorado Mesa University studying mechanical engineering. She's also a nationally ranked collegiate mountain biker, securing the Women's Varsity Individual Omnium at the Collegiate Mountain Bike National Championships in Durango last month. Live from Garfield County, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Walk Denver's art districts with CPR and Denverite Friday to kick off Denver Arts Week, presented by Visit Denver, with events across the city and free performances with CPR Classical at the Museum of Nature and Science on Saturday. DenverArtsWeek.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Haffel. A new exhibition at the Museo de las Americas in Denver examines history and identity through art. CPR arts and culture reporter Monica Castillo toured the gallery with some of the show's featured artists. A colorful and powerful figure greets visitors to Denver's Museo de las Americas. Quetzalcoatl floats over the heads of guests with a royal feather coat in jewel-toned blue, purple, green, and pink. It's one of the first pieces in the new exhibit, Smoking Mirrors, Visual Histories of Identity, Resistance, and Resilience. Emmanuel Martinez's handmade Quetzalcoatl is a departure from the artist's usual large-scale murals. But he says he has a long history with the winged god as one of the early artists in Colorado's Chicano mural movement. Uh, the first, first time I used Quetzalcoatl was in 1970 uh, when I painted a mural at uh, La Alma Park. Lincoln Park on a, on a building that's no longer there and they knocked it down. Artist David Garcia's interpretation of Quetzalcoatl's enemy, Tezcalipoca, sits just below the airborne figure. In some interpretations, the two dueling entities represent creation and destruction. That duality you were talking about, Aaron, about the serpent and Tezcalipoca or Quetzalcoatl, and it's kind of, for me, it actually represent the earth and the sky. So Tezcalipoca is like the universe, like the stars, and then Quetzalcoatl is like the earth. Tezcalipoca's name translates to smoking mirrors. The term is in reference to the volcanic stone of obsidian. Its smooth texture can be polished into a glassy surface. It was seen as a portal to another dimension. At the museo's exhibit, a large piece of obsidian sits near the entrance as guests pass the two warring gods. The exhibit draws from history, both real and mythical. Many are reflections of indigenous Mexican cultures, how colonization affected them, and how ancient traditions still survive. The artists span different mediums and generations. One of the exhibit's curators, Lucha Martinez de Luna, is the director of the Chicano Chicana Murals of Colorado project. It's a group dedicated to protecting and preserving the state's array of murals. Many of the artists featured in Smoking Mirrors are muralists who were challenged with creating something for an indoor exhibition, like Lucha's father, Emmanuel. Just, I've always been around art and especially public art and murals, participated helping him paint the murals and also watching how, how much it affected the community to first have those murals painted in their public spaces. Other artists in the show look back at historical figures, named and unnamed, and their influences on their communities and subsequent generations. There's a celebration of survival throughout the space. For local artist Alicia Cardenas, looking into a smoking mirror is a way to reconnect with her culture on a deeper level. The smoking mirror is our subconscious mind. We see ourselves in a regular mirror, that's our conscious mind. You see yourself in a smoking mirror, 
and that's the other you. And a lot of people think that other you is a negative side of you, but it's not. It's just the other you. It's the deeper you. It's the spiritual you. Her painting La Llorona is a riff on the old folk tale. Instead of depicting her as a threatening ghost mourning her drowned children, Cardena sees her as a misunderstood spirit. She used her view of a smoking mirror to portray La Llorona as a Mesoamerican figure who protects women and children. We don't trust ourselves enough. We have these stories embedded into our DNA, but we look to anthropologists to tell us what happened. And that's, to me, not the right way. Other artists comment on the more recent experiences of Chicano and Mexican-American communities. In Anthony Garcia's vivid painting, A Whitewash Two, the bold colors of a serape are interrupted by white splotches of paint trying to replace the culture that was there. The work represents the violence of gentrification. Over the last 15 years, curator Martinez de Luna has also seen the destruction of her community's murals because of gentrification. She says curating the Smoking Mirrors exhibit was a chance to think about the history we don't want whitewashed. So hopefully the audience can start having these conversations of what I think our American history really tries to avoid and, and make seem like it didn't happen. Smoking Mirrors is on display now through February 26th. I'm Monica Castillo, CPR News. And that's Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to our team, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer, Andrea Dukakis, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Carla Jimenez, Avery Lill, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. You know, we love to hear from you. On Twitter, we're at Colorado Matters. I'm at HeffelN. Or send us an email, coloradomatters at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. 